Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. I'm watching for my cue here. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Lauren Rich Fine, a partner at Greece Financial and a proud member of the City Club. It's my pleasure to introduce you to today's speaker, the editor-in-chief of National Geographic magazine and a former Clevelander herself and my friend, Susan Goldberg. Now, before we begin, I want to ask you something. Um, think back to the first time you encountered National Geographic magazine. You remember it, I'm sure, because it was so distinctive the yellow border of the cover, the photographs from South American jungles and African deserts, the faces from people far away, and the stories, the long, deep stories that when read took you on a journey transporting you far from your own corner of the world. National Geographic is one of those iconic brands in the world of publishing, as well known as Time or Newsweek, but that renown never made it immune to disruption. Consider the changes in the world of published content since the advent of the Internet first digital video, then streaming digital video, digital cameras, camera phones, Instagram, the shift from print advertising to targeted online marketing, and the expansion of advertorial content. Now consider how a brand as old as National Geographic makes it today. That's what we're here to find out, although I will give you a hint. Check out Nat Geo's and Susan's Instagram presence. Many of you know Susan because she spent a few years here as editor of The Plain Dealer. She's also been an editor at the San Jose Mercury News, Bloomberg's Washington Bureau. She began in, um, in the news business as a reporter for the Detroit Free Press, the Mercury News, and USA Today. She took over the National Geographic in 2014, becoming just the 10th editor since its founding in 1888, and the first woman and the first Jewish person to run the magazine. Her leadership has proved fruitful for the magazine, earning it a Polk Award and a National Magazine Award along with great acclaim from her colleagues and the magazine's readers. Ladies and gentlemen, and members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in a warm welcome for Susan Goldberg. It is so delightful to be back in Cleveland. Um, now I was here only from 2007 to 2010, but my husband and I talk about all the time how much we loved it here, uh-oh, how much we loved it here, how many good friends we made, and just what a rich community it really is. So thank you so much for having me back. Um, I am here, as Lauren said, to talk about how an iconic global brand reinvents itself. I mean, we are on a journey, as we like to say, from reverence to relevance. Everybody loves National Geographic, but then you start asking them, well, when was the last time you actually read it? And so we are on this journey. But I never talk about National Geographic without starting with this, because I've learned something being the editor of National Geographic. Everybody wants to be a National Geographic <laughs> photographer. 
So this is what that's like. Hello, my name is Charlie Hamilton Jones, and today I'm on assignment for National Geographic. <laughs> and that, in fact, is what it's like to be a National Geographic photographer. But it's so funny. So we've got this 130-year-old brand. Alexander Graham Bell was our second president. And a lot of people think of National Geographic just like this. You know, the magazines in the basement, the magazines in the attic. But the truth is, these days, National Geographic is a lot more like this. We are the number one social media brand in the United States. And I'm going to talk a lot about how we got there and how we're using telling some of the most compelling stories in the world to you know, activate across all of these brands. Now, we're very lucky because you know, print is a challenged business. I think it's not a secret here you know, with, with issues with the plain dealer. It's not a secret anywhere that print is a really challenged business. We have got a, a pretty integrated portfolio of assets. And I would just mention, so with print, we publish in 33 languages. Um, our magazine reaches 54 million people around the world on our print and digital platforms. Television, we are almost in 500 million homes in uh, 70, 172 countries. Social, we are, as I said, the number one publisher, and including on, on platforms like Instagram, the, the biggest brand. We're not as big as uh, Kim Kardashian on in Instagram, but we are trying really, really hard. So we've got this, this wind uh, at our back. And something that nobody knows about our company, because we don't do a good enough job tooting our horn on this, so I'm going to do it right here. We are a for-profit company tied to the nonprofit National Geographic Society. So what we do at National Geographic Partners is we give 27% of our proceeds back to the National Geographic Society, where it's invested in education, exploration, science, and research. And so it kind of creates this circular, um, circular economy. So they, the scientists they fund find amazing things, tell great stories, and we put those into print across our platforms. And it then goes like this. But you know, one of the fascinating things about operating in media at this time is this is the way, increasingly, on devices, people are going to see the stories of National Geographic. And increasingly, it's on mobile devices and not just, and not really desktop. So on that little screen that people have this intimate connection with, people are going to see our professional journalism. And it's journalism like this, this epic picture, which came out of, that's, those are the Grand Tetons in the, in the background. Uh, this came from a special issue we did a few years ago on Yellowstone National Park. One of the things that we think is the more we can tell people about the natural world, engage them in it, the more people will really care about it. And we told them this story on big and little screens. This, is, this little girl is named Yuina, and this is in Manu National Park in Brazil, where her indigenous tribe is increasingly threatened by logging and development. Sometimes we have to tell really terrible stories, like this. This, the slaughter of elephants and rhinos, 10,000, uh, excuse me, 100,000 elephants killed in the last three years alone, is something that we are going to keep shining a light on because I really feel like the more people are informed about this outrage, the more we can do to stop poaching around the world. So we're telling stories like that. 
and always we are telling the stories of climate change. Um, this was taken by photographer Paul Nicklin in Antarctica, and you know it is a beautiful, beautiful uh, picture. But this is a melting iceberg. I was just recently myself in the Arctic, where you could see the vast change to the landscape because of the receding of the glaciers, and you see the distress of animals like polar bears who can't find anything to eat. So these are issues that we are going to keep top of mind for people. So this is, this is probably not the best slide in the world. The, the figure to look at, though, is the 423 million. Those are our, you know, uh, our, our social numbers. The one I really want to focus on, though, is Instagram. Like I said, we're the number one brand on Instagram, um, uh, media brand, or no, what, number one brand on Instagram. Like I said, Kim is, is bigger than us. But you know, I, thought, I thought it was worth looking at how we're using our, our platform on Instagram to tell important stories. And so I looked at some of our most liked content. And the reason I think that Instagram works for us is because we have given the keys to our account to about 128 trusted National Geographic photographers who post their own, who post their pictures and then write using their own voice about what they have found. So here is photographer Brian Scarry, who in fact is writing about the Arctic and he's talking about this harp seal pup and how important it is that the ice remain so this seal can have a good habitat. And so this is adorable, of course, and it got 664,000 likes. And then there's this. Now this was taken by photographer Amy Vitale in China a few years ago for a story we were doing about how China was rewilding its pandas. They're breeding them and putting them back out into the wild. Um, obviously, adorable again, but an important message, 735,000 likes. And then one of our most liked pictures um, is this um, baby emperor penguin taken by Paul Nicklin, one of our Arctic photographers and Antarctic photographers, 787,000 likes. So you know, what does this tell you? Well, people, don't, people like baby animals. <laughs> but what I really think it tells you is that people want to engage with us, and sometimes they're willing to engage in content that's a lot tougher than baby animals. Now, this is taken on a, an expedition that we funded. We sent a photographer, a videographer, a writer, and three mountaineers to scale the highest peak in Southeast Asia. And the expedition completely fell apart. The team turned on each other. They ran out of food. They never made it to the top. And this is a picture posted on Instagram by our photographer, Corey Richards, who writes in his caption, sunburned, filthy, and exhausted after months in the jungle, climbing mountains, and the slow, steady stripping of social niceties and veneers, the reduction to our most basic and raw existence. And so that is not a cuddly animal story. And 250,000 people liked that. And here are our emaciated climbers and almost 200,000 people like that. And the reason I tell you this is this, is this exemplifies increasingly how we are telling stories at National Geographic. We will break the stories, start the stories on our digital platform, and then a few months later, repurpose into print. This is how that story of that expedition appeared in the opening spread of our magazine. So just keeping in mind increasingly, we are starting with 
some sort of a digital platform and then pushing into print rather than the other way around, which of course is happening across a lot of media platforms. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how we decide what stories to tell. And I'll talk about each of these in turn. So first, we want to tell stories that make a difference, stories that matter, that where we can get people to take action, to move the needle on, to make the planet a better place, stories that touch people's hearts. And where I'd like to start is with our June cover. This is out right now um, on newsstands, Planet or Plastic. We decided it was super important to shed to, to shine a really bright light on the fact that we are drowning in plastic. It is a crisis. And you know, unlike, unlike climate change, at least so far, there are no plastic deniers. Uh, because <laughs> you, you can actually see it. And uh, it, it, is, it is pretty scary. And what we try to do when we tackle these tough stories is not just tell people about the problems, but give them some actionable information so they can feel empowered to do something about it. You know, so we, we start out telling the story of plastic. I mean, plastic is a miracle, right? It saves lives. It, it, um, it got us to the moon. It helped us win World War II. But now we've got a plastic apocalypse. And you know, where it really started was back in the 50s. This is a picture from Life magazine in 1955, which was celebrating the throwaway lifestyle because it was going to free the housewife from the drudgery of washing things. And, you know, when I was growing up, you know, my mom kind of felt like, like that, I've got to say. She was thrilled to have all of that stuff you could just throw away. But now the result of that is really coming home to roost. And so when we do a story like this, we're going to tell it in a way that only National Geographic can. So we sent a photographer and a reporter around the world to document what this means. This picture is in Bangladesh, and all of these plastic bags have come down the river and washed up on shore, and it is the job of this woman and her son to clean them and to dry them and to get them to the recycler. That is our convenience. And this picture, which personally has just b stuck in my mind, of this little girl also in Bangladesh. And she is there with her brother and her mother. And they are trash pickers. And this little girl, who looks to be about seven, eight maybe, her entire job with her family is to strip the, the paper labels off of those bottles, to separate the green ones from the clear ones, and to send them to recyclers. And I look at this picture, and I think, I am never drinking from a plastic bottle again. And pictures like this from the Philippines. All of these bottles came off the streets of Manila, collected up by basically trash pickers again, who will eventually get them to recycling. And you know, I'm, I, I, fear like, I fear I'm putting too positive a spin on this. I keep saying recycling, like everything's recycled. But you know, here in the United States, only 10% of plastic is recycled. Globally, it's a little less than 20%. So there is a long, long way to go. Now, we also tried to tell not just how plastic is affecting the lives of people, but its impact on wildlife. This picture, which I think is so powerful, of this seahorse on a plastic Q-tip, you know, sort of using the Q-tip to catch a ride in the, um, you know, in, in the current. But how sad is that? Or even worse, this turtle, I have a, it ends well. This particular <laughs> turtle caught in a fisherman's plastic netting 
Now this turtle would have died. Luckily the photographer freed it. And this stork, again a happy ending, freed by the photographer, but caught in this plastic bag. And one of the things you never think about is how these plastic bags that we dispose of just so merrily without even thinking about it, they can kill animals again and again and again. Because if this animal had died in that plastic bag, eventually its carcass would have disappeared. But the plastic bag could have ensnared yet another animal. And so we have just a huge, huge issue. So what we're trying to do in this campaign, which we call Planet or Plastic, is get people to take a, take a pledge that they're going to use less plastic, and we give them a number of ways to do that. And already, it sounds like a small number, but already 40,000 people have actually bothered to do that. Um, and we are enlisting the help of you know, a social campaign across our Instagram account, but also the help of celebrities. That is Zoe Deschanel, uh, who you know, is tweeting about this for us and putting it out there on her own Instagram and Facebook accounts to try to drive, uh, drive awareness. So already, 670 million people have come to this content across our digital platforms. So when I talk about wanting to do stories that make a difference, I'm talking about stories like our plastic issue. Now this is one of my, my favorite ongoing projects of National Geographic, and it falls into the category of we want to do stories that other people simply can't do because they don't have our great photography, they don't have our global reach, they don't have our crazy ambition. So this is PhotoArc. And PhotoArc is a 25-year-long project of photographer Joel Sartori, who has set out to photograph, really do portraits, of every animal in captivity. And he is doing that because if we stay on the road we're on, half of these animals are going to be gone by 2100. He aims to photograph about 12,000 animals. He is already up over 8,000. And it's just amazing. And what I love about Joel's project is it isn't just about the heroic animals, right? The charismatic animals. So it isn't just about the lions or the tigers or the bears. But he, he also photographs the little animals that people tend not to notice quite so much. The rats and the snails and the frogs. And we like Joel's project so much that a couple of years ago, we put it on the cover of National Geographic. And we decided we would do 10 different covers. And so depending on where you were, you know, you might have gotten the frog or maybe you got the lemur or, or maybe the, um, you know, the hippopotamus. But people say, why did you do it that way? And the, the real truth is, is just because we couldn't decide. <laughs> so <laughs> we didn't know which one we liked the best. But with great content like this, you're going to see it across all of our platforms, right? So you're going to see it on our print platforms. We have done immensely successful books using the content of the photo arc. If you go to nationalgeographic.com, you can see it like this.
what Joel says is, if I can just get people to care, if I can get them to fall in love, I can get them to make a difference. So that's the photo arc on nationalgeographic.com. But if you're a kid, if you're like between 14 and 18, you might like this story better on our Snapchat channel. million kids a month coming to us on our Snapchat channel and I think it's a great opportunity to talk to them about stories in the natural world. Next, we want to be part of the conversation. I don't want to be your grandfather's National Geographic. We've got to do stories that people are really talking about, which is why last year uh, we did an entire issue devoted to the topic of gender. Um, and so we looked at the science of gender, we looked at how traditional gender roles play out over the, all over the world, we looked at the lives of boys, we looked at the lives of girls, but we also looked at people who identify on the gender spectrum. And we ended up putting Avery Jackson, this nine-year-old girl, on our cover because she said such an amazingly profound thing. So she is nine years old and she said, the best thing about being a girl is now I don't have to pretend to be a boy. So when National Geographic, the revered National Geographic, put a nine-year-old transgender girl on its cover, not everybody was happy. <laughs> That's just a very small sampling of, of some of the letters that we received. And about 10,000 people canceled their subscriptions to the magazine. And the only ones that really upset me were the ones who sent me back the magazine still enclosed in its then plastic, we're no longer delivering in plastic, I meant to mention that, but then plastic um, uh, bag that they hadn't even opened it. It was still sealed. They wouldn't even look to see how we covered gender and how we covered gender was through the lenses that National Geographic always uses, visual, global, science-based, fact-based. So those readers were mad at me, but about 450 million other people accessed that content across our platforms. And I thought, reintroduced National Geographic to a next generation of readers and users of our information. So I wanted to share with you one of my very favorite videos. Um, it's about these nine-year-old kids and what they had to say about gender. Um, my name is Hilti Kate Lishak. I'm nine years old. I love you. And I'm nine years old. The best thing being a girl is, bec is because that girls can do a little bit more things than boys can. Boys are better than girls because they can, they're really strong than girls. The best thing about being a girl is now I don't have to pretend to be a boy. I can just be a girl. You get to wear makeup. The worst thing about being a girl is that you just can't do things that boys can do. The worst thing about being a boy is your underarm stinks. Like, it kind of bothers me how there, there was not one girl president.
Fizeram a minha brincadeira. Eu acho que na aparência são um pouquinho mais diferenciadas. If I was a girl, my life would be very strange and odd. The hair always comes in your face. It would be very, very irritating with the long hair. Even though I keep back, I can sell you a crap. If I was a girl, I would have to play Barbies. Um, I won't be able to play boy games. É, eu não posso tipo me envolver nos segredos nas meninas. Well, there's not many things I can do as a girl. There's like barely anything I can do. Something that makes me sad is thinking of my dad killing another animal because it's like a person. I used to go to my dad's house, and then one day he left me on the porch. I got bullied before at school, and then after that, I never saw him again. He just pushed me against the wall, then left without saying sorry. If I could change sort of the world, I would stop people from bowling. I would make the roads able to fit four cars so there would be less traffic. I would not change anything because I like what I have and what I don't have. A chocolate um, house. I would live in that house and I would eat it every day. So you have to appreciate what you have than what you don't have. When I grow up, I want to be a professional golfer. To date. The first Indian president. I want to be a Navy SEAL. I want to be a fan of that. I want to be a fan of that. I want to be a fan of that. I want to be a professor who knows everything. I want to be a I want to be a dentist, banker, or a computer-like genius guy. I am going to help kids have good teeth, not have cavities. Yay, we're done! This is just, I think, an incredibly lovely video. But one of the things that struck me in our doing this project is how you go all over the world and you talk to these nine-year-olds and they're very smart and they're very articulate. And how many of the girls tell you how being a girl is somehow going to limit them from achieving what they want to achieve or doing what they want to do. And it's so ridiculous that here in you know, 2018, this is, this is still happening. So another issue that, that we just did actually in April, which I think is highly relevant and something people want to talk about, was our issue on race. We kicked off a year of stories that we are doing with this issue, and we did it in April because April was the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin, Martin Luther King Jr., and it seemed a good time to step back and take stock with where we are as a nation on race. So we started here with black and white. Um, but I thought we had to own our story. It has not been, um, a secret to me that National Geographic has not always covered race issues in the way that we should have covered them. I think what that used to mean was when we went to foreign countries, we often exoticized people. Um, you know, 
with these pat kind of cliche cliches, they're happy hunters, they're native warriors. So there was that issue with some of our foreign coverage. But domestically, up until um, the civil rights era here in the United States, we essentially ignored people of color completely in our coverage, um, only depicting them in uh, situations where they were laborers or domestic servants. So I thought we really needed to go there. And I wrote this letter to readers, which went completely crazy. I guess I was naive um, a little bit. Uh, I thought we had to do this to, to credibly cover race. I didn't expect it to get the reaction quite that it got, but that turned out to be a good thing because it brought more and more people to our coverage, which was about science, you know, looking at how really everybody is basically the same under their skin, including people and great apes, you know, looking at the, using our, our beautiful photography to look at the issues of skin tone, to look at the rising anxiety in many parts of white America as the country is changing in real time. And <clears throat> I think in 2020, it will be the first time that uh, for people under 18, there is not a majority of white people, but it is a majority of people of color. We looked at something really tough for National Geographic to look at, which is police stops, because so often these police stops become the flashpoint for terrible, destructive conversations around race. We looked at striving, successful young African Americans. In this case, this is Spelman College and this is graduation day, and we don't get to see these images enough. And we also looked sort of at, the ha at a happier version, which is the rate of intermarriage in the United States is just going up astronomically. In the 60s, it was about 5%. It is now nearly 20%. And I think that is going to make a big difference in our country in the future. So we want to do stories that people want to talk about. Next, we've got to act urgently. So, you know, we've got an urgent refugee crisis going on right now in our own country. But a few years ago, when we were at the border of Syria and Turkey, all of these Turkish refugees came excuse me, all these Syrian refugees came streaming across, fleeing the civil war there, um, you know, fleeing ISIS. And so, of course, we used our digital platforms to break that story. But a few months later, we repurposed that story into the magazine, looking you know, looking at this crisis, and you look at this photo by John Stanmeyer, and you see this family and that little boy, and you know pretty much everything you need to know about why there is a humanitarian crisis going on. And I would like us to see similar pictures uh, happening in the United States right now. Um, you know, we are urgent about tackling hard issues. This was taken a few years ago in Sierra Leone at the height of the Ebola crisis. And this is a crisis that is coming back around. And you're going to hear um, from our photographer, Pete Muller, who took these pictures about what that was like. So this is urgent, authentic storytelling. Oh, hold on. That's supposed to animate. No? OK, this is an animated series of pictures uh, narrated by Pete Muller, who is really telling you about how awful the Ebola crisis is, and the story of this man who he said was sicker than anybody he had ever seen, and that it really brought home to him how terrible this disease was and how important it was that we, we got a hold of it. And then finally, 
as storytellers, what, whatever kind of organization you work for, you have to know who you are. Why do people come to National Geographic? I think they come because of these kinds of stories. These are some of our most successful covers in the last five years. Um, I will have to admit to you that the weed cover was the most successful. <laughs> if you just look at newsstand sales, but in terms of overall engagement, uh, it's, it's really uh, plastic, race, and gender have been the most successful lately. So let me just close out with a little video of, you know, of our brand generally and what we're trying to do, and then I will be delighted to answer your questions. person can make a difference. The world needs a lot more conservationists and a lot more scientists. We think we know this place, but we don't. We think we understand how things work, but we don't. That's why exploration is so fundamentally important. It's about telling a story that resonates with all sorts of people all over the world. It's the elation that you get by saving a life. Hugh, you're not that much older. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter if I can't feel my fingers. It doesn't matter how my face stings and feels like it's getting sandblasted. It matters that somebody else can feel that by looking at a picture. The most important message is that every individual matters and every individual makes a difference every day. I'm Dan Malthrop, CEO of the City Club, and today we're enjoying a forum with Susan Goldberg, Editor-in-Chief of National Geographic Magazine. Um, I should tell you, too, she didn't tell you this, but it's like the most ridiculously cheap subscription you, you can find. It's like $12 for 12 months. Um, we're about to begin the audience Q&A. It's true, right? right? Well, we're trying to raise the price. Okay? All right, all right. Yeah. Get, get it now before they raise the price. 
We're about to begin the audience Q&A, and we welcome questions from all of you, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and our team will work it into the program. Holding our microphones today, our membership and customer experience manager, Corey Isler, and our Youth Forum Council Chair, Teolu Orsanya. May we have our first question, please. Welcome back. It's great to have you here. Great presentation. Uh, I'm just curious if sort of officially uh, uh, National Geographic is apolitical or not, and and what your view on that is, because uh, plainly a lot of the issues you care about editorially uh, are politically charged. Uh, do you do you do you want to weigh in on politics? Do you not want to, or what? Well, I, I think that's a great question and an important one that we think about all the time. I mean, clearly we are writing about sustainability and we are writing about climate change and environmental protection and so we don't cover politics per se so we're not covering the you know various scrapes and scandals that scott pruitt gets into at the epa however we are going to look at the outcome of policy that scott pruitt sets so when they try to roll back the clean air standards for example we'll do stories about the impact of that on the environment, on people, on landscape, on wildlife. So I think that's the needle we're trying to thread. I, I believe our strength is in being a trusted, credible source. So I like to say on the side of science, on the side of the facts, and on the side of the planet. Some people want to make, want to make these issues political, but I think we've just got to push back really hard on that and keep covering important stories that matter. Thanks, Susan. It's so nice to have you back. Um, I'm interested in the editorial process. So as you move from the print strategy to digital, which was a while ago, and we looked at some of the topical plastics and gender and race that you cover, I'm just interested in sort of the time frame of how that works, how the um, using the digital first, and then how those stories, how those big story arcs get uh, developed and, and the process for that. Thank you. Plastics was a good example because um, you know this story sprung up very um, organically, not so different from the process at the Plain Dealer or any other newspaper I ever worked for. So it really came from out in the field. I don't know if you guys remember, but a few years ago when that Air Malaysia plane crashed into the Indian Ocean. And so that's not our normal story, but we started covering it because they kept thinking they found the plane. but. It, They'd, all they ever pulled up was all this plastic junk, right? And then there began to be stories about the giant plastic blob in the ocean. And every time we wrote about that, the giant plastic blob, which is our story, we got just tremendous reaction from our readers. And these are, this, these are all digital stories. So then we sat back and thought, you know what, this plastic thing is really resonating with people. What if we did an issue that was largely, not entirely, but largely devoted to the topic of plastic. And I think we have gotten uh, very lucky with the you know, relevance of this and how much people are just talking about it. So that's one way, just from, from the ground up. You know, we get a lot of story ideas over the transom, as you might imagine. We get a lot of story ideas from our photographers, from writers that we've worked with. And then we, as an editorial group, just start thinking about uh, topics that would be good to cover. So a, an issue like the gender issue or the race issue, we planned that for about a year, uh, but we can change things up to about mm, 
six, my managing editor would kill me if he heard me say this, six weeks before we print. <laughs> but he would kill me if he knew I said that. So, uh, but I come out of the daily, you know, the daily journalism world, so I believe we can change things up until the last moment, and we have really been pushing hard to be more nimble and more timely. So, like at newspapers, we get our stories from everywhere. Susan, this question won't surprise you coming from me. Um, a lot of people don't know that Fox owns National Geographic, and you and I have talked in the past about all the many benefits, and I'm wondering if you could talk about both the benefits and if there are any detriments as well. Well, um, it's been interesting. So in November of 2015, a 20-year partnership that Fox had with the National Geographic Channel was expanded to include all of the media assets of National Geographic, as well as our travel and expeditions business, our live events business, and our licensing business. So all of the for-profit companies that uh, are part of National Geographic are 73% owned by by 21st Century Fox and 27% owned by the National Geographic Society. Well, this is a highly relevant topic right now because as you've probably heard, there is a bidding war going on for the assets, the entertainment assets of 21st Century Fox between Disney and Comcast. So I think we're not much longer going to be owned by 21st Century Fox, but we'll end up either with Disney or Comcast and where that goes, I have really no idea. Um, I will say that, you know, the, the complicated part of the Fox relationship is because people hear Fox and they think Fox News. But actually 21st Century Fox is a you know, global, gigantic entertainment company that's doing everything from making great movies like 12 Year a Slave to subversive television like The Simpsons. I mean, and you know, FX and you know, all of this stuff. So we're one of those companies under that umbrella. I will say they have left us alone to operate independently. Nobody's ever told me to put out the climate denier issue. Somebody, people used to ask me, would they do that? Um, so I think people at first were really concerned about the ownership of, of Fox, of National Geographic, but now that they have seen in the last two, two and a half years, it has been just fine, actually, and they've been very supportive partners. Hi, Susan. Um, I came today because I just wanted to compliment you and thank you for the apology in the race issue. Um, so many people were talking about it, and um, it was just an incredible statement, I thought. And I really think that a lot of people in the black community have always kind of rolled their eyes at National Geographic, not so much for the, the maids and the subservient you know, portraits of Americans that you were talking about, but for the the naked photos of uh, indigenous people, that's always been something we've seen as the National Geographic way. So I'm wondering, did you feel that you saw any type of uptick in um, subscriptions or support after the race issue? And along with that, I guess I, I wonder, uh, as you look at this incredible Instagram popularity that you have, does that translate into dollars for the magazine? last part uh, is the you know $64,000 question is is that huge social reach going to translate into dollars and it does already because we sell ads against our Instagram account for example but what we really want and where the real dollars are is if those people who come to us on Instagram then decide hey I'm gonna subscribe to the magazine I'm gonna buy a book I'm going to take a trip I'm going to you know look at the television so it's really getting them to take that next step but already it translates into dollars. 
and I think clearly, even if it didn't translate into a lot of dollars, it's the way we have to go to reach that next generation of readers and users of our content. Um, as for the letter, I, um, I got just an enormous amount of feedback, um, and much of it very, very positive. Um, what I, I, I don't know about subscriptions. I, don't, I, don't, I think it would be too soon to maybe tell. Uh, what I do hope is that it reintroduced us to African-Americans and said, hey, we are putting a stake in the ground. Um, our coverage you know, hasn't been that stereotyped for a long time, but we are declaring it now. And I also discussed in that letter the importance of having a diverse staff and making sure that we're going out to these communities all over the world with diverse photographers, with diverse writers, because it is a really diverse world and you can't just cover it with 60-year-old white guys. And that's sort of where we were and we have made enormous strides. We're not where we need to be, but I felt like if I can put this in a letter to readers, it's gonna happen. So that's I'm happy about it and it has been a positive experience. As to both your publishing side and the underlying society, how do you go about evaluating and deciding who you are to, what steps have you taken to come to that vision to, to back up your uh, going forward? Well, you, one of your points was that know who you oh, are oh and I what you, what your, you know. Right. So uh, guess how you've decided what your mission is for both the society right. and the publications. Right. I mean, our underlying mission is we say, um, we believe in the power of science, exploration, and storytelling to change the world. So I'm on the storytelling part of that equation. Um, and I think that the things that we have covered for 130 years are somehow feel incredibly modern now. We have covered conservation and the environment and species preservation, science and innovation, and the human journey. And of course, different generations of editors have interpreted that differently over the years. So to me, the human journey is doing a story about culture, uh, excuse me, about, about race or about gender. That wouldn't have been the case you know, some years ago. But it's really those lenses um, that, we're still, that we're still using. But again, we believe in the power of science, exploration, and storytelling to change the world. And I really do believe in the power of storytelling to change the world. Susan, I'm curious to know what is the breakdown of the age range of the people who read it and what efforts are you making to get to the millennials who are, of course, the future, but don't read quite the same as some of the other old, older groups? Absolutely. So our age range really depends on the platform that people come to us on. So when they look at our television channel, I think that is our actually our oldest demographic. The magazine, which is tends to be people maybe average age around 45, 50. But then when you get to, say, people who come to us on Facebook, all of a sudden you're getting the you know, 20 to 30-year-olds. When you get to Instagram, you get a much, much younger audience and a very millennial audience. And then our very youngest audience is on our Snapchat. Um, you know, these are really teenagers um, using Snapchat. And I think the, the way we've got to reach uh, this next generation is giving people the information on the platform in which they want to see it, information that is remade so it is effective on that platform, and then trying to engage people in 
in having a conversation with us, like this plastics campaign, you know, get involved with us in something. I think this generation of millennials, if I can paint with a bit of a broad brush, wants to do something good and they want to be involved and they want to make a difference. Well, I think we've got a lot of suggestions for them on ways that they can get involved to help the world. So I, that's how we're trying. I could ask you a hundred questions. That was very, very, very interesting presentation. Um, I read a lot about the uh, pitfalls, especially with millennials and digital, and how people, you know, I've read, read a lot about how, you know, well, when people are reading things online, people who are reading on a phone, they're, they're not comprehending as much, they're not being as, you know, they're not being as careful, et cetera. And with the numbers you just said, it, the, it sounds like, you know, again, the millennials are going towards social media and getting your, uh, getting your content from social media, and that's very, very visually oriented. You don't see a lot of, like, you know, long articles posted when I'm on Facebook. It's always videos and, and, and uh, photographs. So my question is, uh, are you have any concerns that, that this kind of thing, that th these are very visually compelling pictures. Do you, do you have any concerns that the, these things are just evoking emotions in people, but people aren't going beyond that and looking deeper and reading more and thinking more about these things? I, I worry about our society generally. I wouldn't just pin this on millennials. Um, I think generally people are so distracted. There's so much competition for people's attention. It is so hard to break through and to like, you know, get somebody by the collar and shake them and make, make them pay attention. So I, I worry about that in general. Um, but, you know, as for millennials, I, I look at the figures of what they're reading and when they come to our stories on, national, on nationalgeographic.com, I can see where they stop reading. You know, a lot of people finish a lot of stories. And, you know, that's going to be a range of, of ages of, of people doing that. Um, but I will tell you that for National Geographic magazine, we are the only magazine in the United States to have grown audiences in two key areas in the last year. One was with millennials and the others with people in the C-suites. So that's pretty cool. So people are actually reading. But, you know, to me, it's yeah, to CEOs in the C-suites. So to me, it's on us to make those stories so compelling and so interesting uh, that people can't look away. But um, yeah, I worry. <laughs> how, how could you not, right? Uh, hi, Susan. Um, I'm currently working as a photojournalist in Cleveland, and I was and uh, I was fortunate to uh, be able to travel and photograph across Asia last year. And coming from the perspective of a white male, I'm always looking to um, wonder how to accurately portray and how to tell like more of a fair story of a culture. Uh, I usually do like a lot of research before I go to a place, but I always want to be more fair. So any advice on how to proceed? Well, you know, this is interesting because look, we've got a lot of terrific incredibly talented white males who are photographers. I'm not going to get rid of them. I want to keep working with them. I think the key, though, is to really try to embed in communities so you're telling that so that you're not just parachuting into places and coming up with the easy pictures or the easy answers. Uh, you know, we have a we have a real challenge in reporting indigenous communities, which I want to keep reporting on. And so uh, uh, one of our photographers, a guy named Charlie Hamilton James, who is a British guy, he's about six foot four, he has blonde hair and blue eyes, and he really stands out in an indigenous community in Peru and Brazil, where he has been. Um, 
you know, he just came back from shooting there. You know, he spent months down there and, um, you know, tried to figure out how to take pictures that weren't these sort of hackneyed portraits of people standing up in a row with, you know, with their weapons or spears and, you know, partially clad, but being with, being with people in this community in their everyday lives and capturing the joy of that community. And I have, this is going to be our October cover, um, Charlie's work, and I actually did an interview with Charlie that will be in the magazine precisely on this topic of, you know, how do you go about sensitively and accurately portraying these communities? You know, the fact is there are not a lot of indigenous Brazilians who are na National Geographic level photographers, or we would have hired one. Um, but it's, it's something that we are super sensitive to. But I really think it's getting to understand the community. And that's as true for covering a community in Cleveland as it is for covering people in the rainforest. And thank you. Your presentation is outstanding. I have a question about all the responses that you get from some of your articles. You've pointed to one slide. How is there a feedback? Do you, do you get back to them? Do you, how, do, do you take a story further? What happens to all of the messaging that you get from your readers? It depends how it comes in, really. Um, you know, when I was in Cleveland and I knew a lot of people and I was the editor of the plane dealer, I would get accosted in the grocery store sometimes or at the, or at the um, you know, at, at the health club. Um, you know, here, uh, that doesn't happen. So most of it comes in, um, people are writing emails. And so we've got a team of folks who takes a look at them, who tries to compile them if they are seeing like a big trend, like, I am canceling because you put a nine-year-old transgender girl on the cover of National Geographic. They make sure I know about that. And we do actually get back to people. I, I am sure there, there are some people who never got back, who never have gotten a response, and I feel a little bad because it can get a little overwhelming, especially when it comes in on paper. Um, but we really try to get back to everybody. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a little tough. Today at the City Club, we've been enjoying a forum featuring Susan Goldberg, Editor-in-Chief of National Geographic. Our forum is today is the annual Sally Grease Endowed Forum in honor of women of achievement made possible by a generous endowment gift from Robert D. Grease in honor of his wife, Sally. We are delighted to have Sally and Bob Grease with us today. Thank you so much for your continued support of City Club programming, both of you. Our community partners today are the Countryside Conservancy and PRSA Cleveland. Our hospitality partner is the Metropolitan at the Nine Hotel. We appreciate your partnership and support. And lastly, we welcome guests at tables hosted by Cuyahoga, Cuyahoga Community College and Grease Financial. We thank all of you for being with us today. That brings us to the end of our program. Thank you very much, Susan. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, Go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, 
the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.